many of you have had the same experience I have, but one of the most, experience, uh, most meaningful experience in my life is when somebody else prays for me. I actually just uh, got to have this opportunity this past week, and I can tell you, when somebody prays for you out loud in your presence, it almost feels like uh, they're coming alongside of you to shoulder your burdens, and you know for a fact that these are people who love you and care for you and know you. Have you ever experienced that? There's power. There is power in being prayed for. Well, did you know that Jesus did this very thing for you? And he continues to do it for you even to this day? That Jesus prays for you. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to what? Intercede with God on their behalf amazing now i want to know what is he praying about what does he come to the father on my behalf for i mean can you imagine if we could just listen in on that conversation the encouragement the wisdom the courage the perspective that i would get about my life as i listen to jesus praying on my behalf well guess what we don't have to live in mystery. We know the things that Jesus is praying for us, and we're going to discover them together this morning in John chapter 17 as we continue our series walking through the Gospel of John called Encountering Christ. In John 17, we get a glimpse into exactly what it is that Christ prays for us as his people. So as I invite you to do every week, as Jeff does as well, as Brian does, if he's teaching, we want to be first-handers in God's Word. So take out your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this week, we provide those in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, take that home with you. That's our gift. John is about four-fifths of the way back in your Bible. And uh, I'm going to invite you. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. So I'm going to really encourage you. You want to have that open and be able to follow along. Now, not all of you use message notes, but for those of you who do, you'll notice that I called this message the Lord's Prayer. Now that might be confusing to some of you who grew up understanding that the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6 was the Lord's Prayer. You know the one I'm talking about, right? Our Father who art in heaven, we, I mean, that's the Lord's Prayer. But really, that would be better titled as the Disciples' Prayer. Because that's the prayer he taught us to be able to pray. In John 17, we have the longest recorded prayer in any of the Gospels from Jesus himself. And that's why this is really the Lord's Prayer. Now, quite honestly, John 17 is considered to be one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. By many, uh, this is the culmination uh, because in this we see Christ's soul bared for us to see before he steps out into his last night on earth before the cross. This is also the culmination, as we've been discovering together in the Gospel of John, of what we've been calling the upper room discourse, right? All the way back from chapter 13, which we were in a couple months ago. Jesus has had this conversation going on with his disciples on the last night of his life, preparing them for his departure. And what, it, what is the last thing he does with them? This is so encouraging to me. I'm sure they look back and said, man, he prays for them. He wraps up his last night with them by praying for him. Now, I've got to tell you, it's impossible to plumb the depths of John 17 in one message, but that is our task this morning. To be honest, as I prepared this week, I had six different outlines on Wednesday. How am I going to break up John 17? But as I read and reread and reread, it sort of dawned on me. What is this prayer about? 
And it's mostly about Christ's desire for himself and for the church, for us. This is all about Christ's heart and his desire for himself and for the church. So if you're following on your notes, John 17 reveals Jesus' deepest desire. We see Christ's heart laid bare, his deepest desire. And what is his desire? It's to glorify God. Plain and simple, it's to glorify God. You're going to see the word glory is used eight times just in this one prayer. And if you've been with us throughout this series in John, you know almost every chapter, almost every encounter that we've had, Jesus' chief goal in all of those encounters has been to give glory to his Father. Now, I talked about this several uh, weeks ago, but I'll remind you again, when we talk about the word glory, it comes from a Greek word which means brightness, beauty, and fame. And one of the ways I suggest it, because let's be honest, glory is such a religious-sounding word, isn't it? I suggested that when we read the word glory, we substitute it with the word spotlight. To spotlight someone, to spotlight something. That's what glory means. It means to spotlight someone or something. And Jesus' deepest desire in this whole gospel, we've seen it again and again, is to what? Spotlight his Father. Glorify his Father. And in the same way, he's going to pray that that would be our desire as well. That as the church... Our deepest desire, our flaming passion, would be to glorify God, to spotlight God with our lives as individuals and also as a church. And in this prayer, Jesus is going to lay out how we do that. And I want to focus on that this morning. So it's only appropriate, don't you think, as we uh, study the greatest prayer in the Bible that maybe we pray uh, for God to reveal. Let's bow our heads one more time. Lord, we thank you for John 17. We thank you that this has been recorded for us to learn from today, still, to know that you intercede on our behalf even now. That is encouraging. That is a wonderful thing. And we pray that we might be encouraged by that today as we look at this rich, wonderful prayer. Fill our hearts and our minds as only you can. We pray together that the spotlight would not be on any of us, but it would be on you alone. Amen. Well, the first thing Jesus does is pray for himself. Look at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What is Jesus' deepest desire for himself there? If you're following, Jesus prays the Father is glorified. The Father is glorified in what? What is he pointing to here? What is this prayer referring to? The cross. That the Father is glorified in the cross for Jesus, the work of his entire life. Three years here on earth. Excuse me, 33 years here on earth. Three years in ministry. Is culminating to this moment. His destiny, his purpose, his work for coming, the cross of Jesus Christ, where both he and the Father might be glorified. Now listen, in the time this was written, the cross was not seen as an object of glory. 
anything but, right? It was an object of shame and suffering, an object of discontent. But for Jesus, the cross is the object of his greatest glory. Now, what does that mean? How can the cross be glory? Well, again, if you're following, the cross was the glory of Christ because the cross was the completion of his work. The cross was the completion of his work. You see, Jesus came for a purpose. He came for a work, and if he had stopped short of the cross, it would have been saying God's love only goes this far. What was the work Jesus came for? We see it in uh, verse 3. He came for the work of eternal life. If you're on your notes there, his work was to give the gift of eternal life. Now listen, the Gospels make it clear that Jesus could have escaped the cross if he had wanted to. He did not have to go to the cross, but he didn't escape it. He completed the work, the very work for which he had come. I I really love verse 2, and I hope you didn't miss it as we read through that. Look at that closely with me, because in that verse we get to see the heart of our Lord so often, don't we? So often when we think about the gift of Jesus, we think of it as his gift to us, God's love gift to us, which it is. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave us his Son. But, notice what Jesus says in verse 2 and also seven other times in this prayer. It says that we, let me make that personal, that you, that I am also the Father's gift to the Son. Maybe you don't see the difference there. That is incredibly meaningful to me. Not only, that means not only do I receive the gift that is Christ, but he views my life as a gift to him. Do you view yourself that way? Or do you view yourself as some ungrateful worm who God let in by the nick of your skin? You are his gift. He views you as his (coughs) gift. That is amazing. As a parent, I understand this. We're coming up to Christmas, and of course I enjoy receiving gifts. Who of us don't like receiving gifts? Don't lie. We all do. And yet... I receive as much joy, if not more joy, when uh, we think about a gift that we're giving our children and the reaction that they have from receiving that gift. It's the same idea here. We receive the gift of Christ, and it's a wonderful gift, but I want you to think as well, Christ views it as a gift too. You are his gift. It's why he came. It is the work for which he had. It's the cross, why he endured it, the joy that was set before him. Now, Jesus explains about this gift a little bit more in verse 3. Let's read it out loud together now on our notes. It says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus has given us the gift of eternal life, but here we discover that eternal life isn't what we always make it out to be. It doesn't mean quantity of life. It doesn't mean just that we live forever and ever, because that actually could be kind of tedious for some. Eternal life is all about the quality of life that Christ has given us. If you're following on your notes, according to Jesus, eternal life, when you narrow it all down, is knowing God personally. Knowing God personally. Why did Jesus complete his work on the cross? So that we might know God personally. In the Bible, the word know is a very intimate term. It refers to uh, the relationship between close friends or even married couples, to be honest with you. And 
As you know, knowing someone involves more than, or it involves two things, really. It involves knowing about them, of course, right? You have to know about someone if you're going to know them. I have to know people, my wife's likes, dislikes, all those things. I've got to know about her. But listen, we learned throughout the Bible, you learned it in our series in James, even the demons know about Jesus. We've seen it in encounter after encounter in the Gospel of John. It's Jesus confronting these devoutly religious people who know all about God. And yet he says, you're missing. You're missing the main point. He wants to know you personally. He wants to know you personally. Just like in any relationship, a personal relationship with God involves mutual caring, mutual exchange, uh, mutual engagement with each other, right? A marriage is nothing more than something written on a piece of paper unless there's mutual engagement between the couple. It's marriage in name only. And God says, I'm not just looking for you to know about me. I want you to know me personally. It's why Jesus came. I got to tell you, as a pastor now for over 10 years, and this happens all the time, one of the saddest things, one of the saddest things people can say to me is they'll come up to me and say, I've been to church my whole life, and I never knew, I never heard that God wanted to have a personal relationship with me. Too many people, too many people know about God. That's not why Jesus came. Not just to know about him. He wants to know you. And he wants you to know him. Do you know him? Do you know him like that? I, I believe this is what Paul was meaning when he wrote these words in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. I don't want to just know about him. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. How's that for a mutual exchange? I want to know Christ so well, I want to share even in his sufferings. That's a relationship. That's why Jesus came. Do you know him? Do you know him that way? Well, after praying for himself, Jesus now turns toward us. Specifically, if you're following there, he prays that God is glorified in our work in the world. He is praying that God is glorified in our work in the world. Listen, Jesus had a work to give us the gift of eternal life. That's why he came. He prayed God would be glorified. But guess what? We have a work as well in this world. You see, we are now the world's best hope. We are the world's best hope for seeing the glory of God today. And the way we do that, the way we do that is by living out the mission he has given us as his people. Now, what is that mission? Well, it's the mission he turns to in the rest of this prayer. Now, I'm going to read all the way through verse 19 right now, but we're going to come back and break it down some. But I just want you to listen as you're reading along. Listen to the heart of our Savior, the prayer he has for us, his mission for us in this world. Look at verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. 
None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may be so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now listen, 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Here we discover that just as God the Father sent his Son, he sends us now. The Son sends us now to be his ambassadors in this world. He prays specifically here for the disciples, of course, but disciples are no, nothing else than somebody who has been commissioned to a task. And we carry on that commission today as Christ's disciples in the church. And what is that commission? What is the commission he gave us? To bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. I'm just going to tell you, we can do that in a number of ways. The Bible is full of all kinds of ways we can bring glory to God. Micah 6, 8 says we can bring uh, glory to God by showing mercy, loving justice, walking humbly before our Lord. Of course, anytime you hear the word mission, we think of Matthew 28, right? The Great Commission, where we are to go. How do we bring glory to God? We go into this world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We learned in our series in James, we bring glory to God when we care for the least of these. There are dozens of other examples I could give you of ways we can bring glory to God, but ultimately they are all pointing to one thing. They are all pointing to one thing, and if you're falling on your notes, I even italicize this, it's so important. Our mission, our mission is to make God known, period. Our mission is to make God known in this world. Think of it this way, the Father sent the Son, the Son sends, says He's going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to send us into this world in order to carry on the very mission Jesus came into the world. We are to be sent out ones in this world. We carry on Jesus' mission. We glorify Him when we make Him known to others. And in this prayer, we see three things Jesus says. These are going to be necessary things in order for you to be able to make this happen. Number one, the first thing that's necessary to make God known in the world, if you're following, is by being in, but not of the world. He prays that we would be in, but not of the world. Have you heard that before? This is where we get it here. Now, Jeff showed us several weeks ago that the word world in the Gospel of John doesn't always refer to the physical universe or planet Earth. Oftentimes, John uses it to describe human society organizing itself without God. Human society organizing itself without God. According to Jesus, as we've discovered in this Gospel of John series, the world is in darkness. The world is in darkness, but he came as the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I have come to shine light, he said. But now I am leaving this world, and I'm going to ask you to continue that mission. To shine light in this dark world world i'm going to use an example here how many of you brought your flashlights don't don't bring yours out yet did you bring them are right, you going to use those a little bit later but i want you to turn the lights off here here's what jesus is essentially saying 
says, I'm the light of the world. I came to shine light. But now guess what? I'm leaving. I'm going to be leaving, and I am asking you now. Will you do the very thing that I came to do? Will you bring glory to God? Will you spotlight the work that I did on the cross so that others may know and believe? This is the mission he has given us, to be in the world, shining as light, even in the darkness. You can turn on the lights again. Now that's interesting. And I love this prayer because I think Jesus knows me really well. Because I notice what he prayed about here. Jesus knows it's really hard to be in darkness, isn't it? He knows that my temptation is going to be to stay around people who already have the light. It's a lot safer. It's a lot more comfortable. I mean, it, this is so true, isn't it? It's so much easier to isolate ourselves from the world in which we live. How often do Christians arrange their lives completely around other Christians? We go to Bible studies that are 100% Christian. We go to Sunday schools that are 100% Christian. We come to church and sure hope everybody's Christian. All our friends are Christians. We pray when we get that new job that our coworkers will be Christians. Because otherwise it's going to be hard. We hope our neighbors are Christians. Listen to what Kent Hughes said. This is powerful. It is possible to go womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers. <laughs> now listen, all those things I just mentioned, those are good things. Those are things we need, isn't it? Aren't they? I need to be around other Christians who have the light, but here's what I want us to think about. It's not so that we can go like this. Being around you, being in Bible studies, having Christian friends, all those things is simply a way to recharge our batteries, to strengthen us so that we can go back out and do this. we got to come back and be recharged. And that's what those relationships are for. But we cannot lose sight of the mission he's given us, to be light in this world. Did you know that three stalwarts of the faith we can read about in the Bible? Moses. Elijah and Jonah, they all prayed that they would be taken out of the world. Take me away. But not one of their requests was granted. The Christian attitude toward the world should not be one of withdrawal. Christ does not pray that we should be taken out of the world. He prays that we would live our lives shining his light in the world. Now, of course, by not being of the world, Jesus is also praying what? that we wouldn't become conformed to the world around us. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next thing, but that is a danger as well. When we conform, our light has no power anymore, does it? There's no difference between the way we are living, but if you're following on your notes, the Christian must neither withdraw nor conform to the world. In fact, look at what Jesus prays specifically in verse 15 by reading it out loud. It says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Not isolation, not conformity, but if you're following, he does pray. He does pray that we be protected while on mission. That verb translated protect is a word that was used to describe the primary duty of a shepherd. A shepherd's job is to take the sheep 
into the dangers of the world and to protect them from those dangers, right? The dangers are all around, but the shepherd is to protect them from those dangers, even while they live in those dangers, and that's his prayer for us. Now, I think we can read this prayer, and the temptation uh, is to think, well, he's like leaving us. You remember the story, this was famous, international story, I think it was just only several years ago, with a couple in England who decided it was time for them to go on vacation. And the only problem was they had some really young kids, but they said, well, that's not really a problem. We'll just give them some food and let them fend for themselves that week. You remember this story at all? They went away, like into another country and left their small kids. Is that what's going on here? You're leaving us all by ourselves? Well, no, we've been learning, haven't we? We see it here in this prayer. I'm entrusting you, Father. I'm entrusting you into your care, them into your care. And we've also been discovering he's not going to leave us alone. He's going to send us an advocate. Another just like Jesus to help us. To help us carry out our mission. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is coming. Friends, Jesus' desire is that we would be in, but not of this world. How's that going for you? I mean, honestly, how's that going for you? Are you on mission? Second thing necessary to make God known in this world, this is the of part of not being of the world, is by being sanctified in the truth. Number two, being sanctified in the truth. Read verse 17 on your notes. It says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. It's such another good religious word right there, sanctify. So many people are confused about that word, sanctify. Does that mean I'm supposed to be perfect? Is that like some sort of religious fumigation? that I'm supposed to put over my life that will kill all my evil? You know, you've seen those homes uh, that are being fumigated from bugs. They put the big tent over the house. I mean, is that what Jesus wants? Just to fumigate my life? Well, sort of, but not exactly. Really, if you're following, sanctified just means to be set apart for a specific purpose. To be set apart for a specific purpose. Let me give you an incredibly excellent illustration. I sanctify my toothbrush when I brush my teeth. I'll say that again. I sanctify my toothbrush when I use it for its intended purpose, which is to brush teeth. Likewise, we are sanctified. We are sanctified people when we are put to our intended use, when we are being used for our intended specific purpose. And what is our purpose? Here we go again bring glory to God by making him known in this world. To bring glory to God by making him known in this world. Now imagine I went to use my toothbrush this morning and there was all kinds of dirt on it and bacteria, mud, whatever else you can imagine. The bristles were all gone. The battery was dead. How effective would my toothbrush be in fulfilling its purpose? Not very effective, would it? And so it is with us. So it is with us. What does it mean not to be of the world? What does it mean to be sanctified by the truth which is found in God's word so we can become effective in our set-apart purpose? Yes, sanctification does mean that there's going to need some fumigation going on, doesn't it? Paul writes about this in almost every single letter he wrote. Here's an example from 1 Thessalonians. It is God's will that you should be what? 
sanctified, be set apart for the purpose. What does that mean? That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us. He did not call. He did not set us apart to be impure, but to live a holy life. When we're filling our bodies with drugs or overeating, when we're misusing our sexuality, when we give vent to our rage and anger, when we're taking part in unethical business practices, we are not sanctifying ourselves for the purpose he intended. Now listen, we're never going to be perfect. It's not what sanctified means, though. It means in my thinking, in a daily terms, how I can be set apart today to be used for God's glory. And by the way, you're never going to know You will never know sometimes how God is going to glorify himself through you. But the point of all this is that we can remove the hindrances to his glory in our lives, can't we? We can at least remove some of the things that would keep our lives from spotlighting him. We can set ourselves apart for the purpose in which Christ has made us. Does anyone know that you're a Christian? That you are a set-apart one? Does your life fulfill its intended purpose to glorify God? That's all it means to be sanctified. And that's going to be necessary if we want to make God known in this world. The third thing that's going to be necessary to make God known, if you're following, is by being unified in the church. By being unified in the church. We've seen this already, but uh, look, Jesus gets even more into this, starting in verse 20. 20. Look at it with me. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. We're here because of the message of the apostles. And he's praying for us. What does he pray for us? That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. They may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What does it mean for us to be unified? Well, I can tell you two things that it doesn't mean. Unity doesn't mean that we're all supposed to be the same. Unity doesn't mean that we're all supposed to be the same. You know, too many Christians mistakenly assume that, right? You have to believe what I believe if you want to be right. I'm doing it the right way. This is the right version of the Bible. These are the right songs to sing. This is the right this. This is the right that. This is the right way to dress. This is the right way to educate your children. We are supposed to be the same in everything. That is not unity, is it? You know what that's called? Uniformity. That's what the army's going after when they bring in a new recruit. That is not what the Church of Christ is going after. In fact, I'll say this. I believe that is probably the most disunifying factor. When people claim this is the right way to be and to do it, that is more disunifying than anything else in the body of Christ. 
Unity does not mean unanimity either. You know, unanimity says we have to agree on everything. I have to agree exactly about everything on every matter, including matters of conscience and opinion. And listen, while the church must certainly agree on the crucial matters of truth, truths like we read together, I had Chuck read the Apostles' Creed as we started this morning, those kind of truths that the church has said, this is true for centuries upon centuries. We got to agree on that, but listen, we have freedom when it comes to minor matters. Have, have you learned the ability that you can actually love someone who you still disagree with? Or is that really hard for you? You know, I don't think Jesus is half as disturbed as many people are by the amount of denominations there are in the world. I really don't think it bothers him that much because all churches are going to be different. They maintain distinct identities, but that does not have to endanger the unity of the church. The truth is, we're never going to be the same, are we? Churches will never sing the same songs, organize the same way, worship God the same, use the same Bibles, whatever. We're never even going to believe precisely all of the same things about every issue. But Christian unity transcends all those disagreements because of one thing and one thing only. What is that? It's the one thing. If you're following on your notes, the one thing is that we are united only because of who we are in Christ. That's unity. We are united because we are in Christ. In Christ. It's the work of Jesus that unifies us. It's his work on the cross. It is the unity we share of a personal relationship, a personal, living, vital, healthy relationship with the same God. You notice in the New Testament, if you've ever read through the New Testament, after the resurrection, what do the believers start calling each other? Brother and sister. Brother and sister. Why? Well, what's the shift? They understood. We may have our differences, just like my brother and I have differences. But we are now part of the same family. We are unified in Christ. We share the same Father. As we learned last week, we are adopted, invited into a relationship with him. That is what unifies us, friends. So unified are we, and this is hard for us as Americans because we are so individualistic here, aren't we? This is really hard for us, but so unified, Jesus says, that just as he and the Father are one, so too are we one. Wow. I'm going to have to start doing a lot better with some of you. Just as the Father and Son and Spirit are one, we are one. We share Christ together. We share the same Father. I know many of you have experienced this. I was just thinking just a couple months ago, Chuck and I had the privilege of visiting a couple missionaries across the world. We went to their churches. Some of you, you know this, right? We went to their church. I can't even speak the same language. And yet there is a bond that is deeper than words, deeper than language, isn't there? I mean, I can hug these people. I call them brothers and sisters. Why? Because we are united. Now listen, I don't agree with everything that their church says or does or whatever, but there is something deeper going on, something that transcends all those things. We can disagree and still learn to love one another. The world can't see God anymore, right? Jesus ascended into heaven. But they can see us. And the way that uh, we relate to each other is probably going to be the way they, what they believe about God. And if they see love and unity, they're going to believe that God is love. But if they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. Why would they want any part of that? 
This is why week after week we pray for another church. I mean, again, we're not just trying to be cute here. Like, oh, that would be a good idea. No, no, we really believe that we are one in Christ. We may not do all the same things, believe all the same things on these minor things, but without the other churches, without Lakeside, which we prayed for today, Springfield will never be reached the way God intended it to be reached, right? They're on the same mission we're on. We're on the same team. We are one in Christ Jesus. They are our brothers and sisters. That's why we pray for other churches here in this city. Again, if you're following on your notes, unity is only achieved as we love one another. We can only achieve unity when we love one another. Can you love people you disagree with? Can you? Paul says, have the same attitude that Christ had about you. I was an enemy. And he laid his life down on the cross for me. Am I doing that for others so that the world may see? And I got to share a a cool story with you. I promise not to share kidney stories every week and so forth, but I I am going to share another one because it really has nothing to do with me. I got a call from my uh, coordinator, and uh, we were just talking about a different number of things, and she was going to look up. She's looking up some stuff, and then she uh, was looking up how many people have uh, decided to be tested to be a potential donor. Now, I got to tell you, when Peggy and I were down there, we were with, with a number of other people who need a kidney transplant. There were other people in the room, and I don't think any of them had any potential donors. They were all kind of just hoping to get on the transplant list. And that's a pretty common thing. And so she was looking, uh, and all of a sudden, she's like, you got, no, wait. You, no. Wow, what is going on here? And I, I'm like, Love one another. Be willing to lay my life down for my brother or my sister. That is what the world will see. This is different. My sister had the same experience when she got her transplant. Just people coming out and saying, yeah, we do that, of course. And the people at the hospital are like, what? This is weird. This is different. It is different. It's supposed to be different, right? And it's amazing. Why is it so important? Why is it so important we have unity? There's an old Peanuts cartoon that I think explains it well. I tried really hard to find it visually, but you're just going to have to picture it in your mind. I couldn't find it. Picture this scene. Linus is watching TV, and in walks Lucy, threatening him to change it. And he says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? And Lucy looks at him and says, these five fingers. (laughs) Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit... They form a weapon that is terrible to behold. (laughs) What channel do you want? Asked Linus. (laughs) And then the last scene, he's turning away, looking at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like this? (laughs) That's perfect, and it's the heart of Jesus' prayer. It is the heart of Jesus' prayer. Why can't you guys get organized like this? Not so that you can be a weapon. but so you can be a light shining in this world. If you're following on your notes there, our unity determines how effective we'll be in glorifying God. It's as simple as that. Our unity will determine how effective we'll be in glorifying God. Take out your flashlights if you would. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I sent out an email uh, to the people in our church this week asking you to bring your flashlight to church today. If you didn't get it, uh, it's probably because we just don't have your email. No 
I'm not trying to make you feel left out or anything, okay? Turn off the light. Don't turn on your flashlights yet, though. Okay, so here's the mission he's given us as individuals. To be in but not of the world. To bring glory to God by making him known. Now that's effective. I'm effective as an individual doing that. But the point of Jesus' prayer is how much more effective would it be if we were all doing it together? Go for it. That's awesome. When we are unified in our purpose, when we are unified in our mission, how much more glory, how much more will Jesus Christ be spotlighted in this world? As Jesus closes his prayer, he comes full circle back to his primary desire, this glory, this glory. Look at verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. What does he want? That we could be with him. That we could be with him. You're his gift. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you sent me. I have made you known to them. I've spotlighted you and will continue to make you known. How? Through them in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. As we close this prayer, we see the heart of Jesus, don't we? That God would be glorified, both in his work and in our work in this world. And what is our work? It is to make God known. How do we do that? By being in the world but not of it. By being sanctified, set-apart ones, used for our intended purpose and by being unified in our purpose so we are more effective in the gospel. As we close, I'll just ask you this question. Is my desire the same as Christ's? We see Christ's desire here. Is mine the same as his? To glorify God with my life. Is that your desire? It's what he's praying for. At this point, I would normally ask you to pray. I'd bow my head and I'd pray, but we thought... As I've been here for 10 years, there is one person in this church who, in this message, in this prayer that we just unraveled, this desire we see in Christ, this is his desire for our church and for the church with a capital C. He's an elder of our church. He's a leader in our church. His name's Max Louderman. Many of you know him. If you've heard him pray, this is what he prays for. This is his desire for Cherry Hills and for the church with a capital C. So I asked if he'd be willing. I think he's coming out. There he is. Come on, Max. Would you be willing to lead our church uh, in a prayer here as uh, we close this incredible passage? Thanks. Pray with me, please. Father, it is gratitude and thanksgiving that we come to you at this time. We are thankful for the work that you have done and continue to do through the ministries here at uh, Cherry Hills. And uh, just as Jesus prayed for those disciples, those first disciples, those uh, that he commissioned to continue his work after he left them, so we too pray for a continuation of the spreading of the good news to this community 
and of course for all other areas of responsibility that you've given us here. Thank you, Father, for the leadership that sees beyond the walls of this building. Thank you for the men and the women working together, unified in the purpose and the vision you've given them, which is to make known and to glorify the name of our Lord and Savior. Our prayer is that our staff, the elders, the deacons, the deaconesses, teachers, and others in positions of responsibility be committed, be committed together to your purpose, your plan to build your kingdom right here in this area. We pray today, Lord, for your hand of protection around them. May your spirit be present to warn them of the danger of succumbing to the temptations that could destroy the unity and the spirit of this fellowship. Protect them, Lord. Show all of us together your word. Open our hearts and our minds together to your truth. Grow us, Lord, to be more like you. May we be effective in showing those around us what life in Christ is really like. May we corporately and individually let our lights shine for you. And Lord, we would be remiss if we forgot that we here at Cherry Hills are only a small part of the church as you see it. That great body of believers universal. Again, we pray for a clear sense of your unifying purpose throughout this body as well. Give your church the wisdom and the power to face a culture which has a growing sense of antagonism toward you and toward your people. Lord, give us the power and desire to love as you loved, to relate like you related, to pray as you prayed. Give us patience and the power to stay the course. Father, only through you, your spirit and your word, can we endure and bring glory to your name. Strengthen us, Father, and all the praise is yours. Amen.